al pastor con su rebaño al espuntar la mañana bajando por el sendero de la sierra la pradera va musicando sus quejas con su flautín de carrizo seguido por sus ovejas como si fuera you are watching from. We're in a series right now called Melodia, and we are talking about this idea that, that the Bible and the Holy Spirit calls us to do life together, and oftentimes that means that we have to talk about our different worldviews, our different perspectives, and we're using this concept of a melodia or melody to talk about how oftentimes we are just raised or, or uh, kind of brought up with completely different perspectives due to our culture, due to our upbringing, due to things that have happened in our lives. And so we open every single service with a different genre of music that elicits some sort of feeling, some sort of emotion. And none of those feelings or emotions are bad. They're just different based on different songs. So we did Metallica a few weeks ago. We did a, a Toy Story song a few weeks ago. And this week, we played for you uh, some mariachi music. And I'm going to talk to you about that music in just a minute. But I want to make sure that uh, when I ask you here in a second if this is your jam, that I clarify what that means this week. I'm not asking if you think the music's beautiful. I'm not asking if you respect the culture. I'm asking if you drive around bumping that music in your car on a regular basis. Okay, so that's the clarity I want to bring. So how many people, you're like, this is my music. This is my jam. Raise your hand. Two of you. Three of you. Three of you. All right, good, good, good. And how many people, you respect and love the music, you love the culture, you love the musicianship, but you're like, absolutely not. I, I will not. <laughs> okay, good, good, fair enough. Now, I, I want that, there's a purpose behind that, but let me give you some history about uh, the, the band that sang the song and also about the artist who wrote it. The name of the song is El Pastor. It was written by Miguel Aceves Maya, who was a Mexican actor, composer, and singer. He was the very first Mexican folkloric singer to travel around the American continent and do world tours with his music. He's an incredibly well-known artist around this kind of music. Now, this particular version of the song is actually sang by uh, a group that maybe many of you have experienced when you have been to Disney World and to Epcot, for it is sang by the same group, Mariachi Cobre, that, is, uh, that, that you'll hear playing in Epcot. They are the first prominent Mexican-American mariachi group. They were founded in Tucson, Arizona in 1971 out of another uh, group, a church-sponsored youth group, 
the Los Chonguitos Feos, and I have a picture of them. And this is, this is actually where the story begins to intersect with my life. Uh, about 22 years ago, I married a Mexican girl, and uh, her name was Aaron Ruiz. And Aaron's father is this gentleman right here, and he was part of founding that original church group. Her uncle is this gentleman right here, and actually when you Google the uh, Mariachi Cobre in Epcot, it comes up with a picture of that band, and her uncle, we'll put up that picture, yep, her uncle is this gentleman right here. And so uh, this music is, is close to my heart, it's close to my family, and uh, it's, it's really an in- been an interesting thing, and yes, this is the song that my wife submitted for <laughs> Melodia, so she's so excited that we're playing it today. Uh, I also want to I want to welcome uh, Aaron's parents and uh, also uh, Uncle Mac if he's watching because uh, it was really special to be able to play some of their music for you today. Mariachi Cobra is one of the best known mariachi bands in the United States. They perform uh, for millions of visitors at Epcot, Disney World, and they have since 1982. Now here's the question I want to ask you. I have a feeling I know the answer, but how many people know well what the song's about? <laughs> yes. I'm, uh, yes. Okay. Good. Good. Again, everything at Kesset has a purpose. Uh, by the way, in case you were wondering, the purpose of the song was to do something called "Othering You," and that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about what it means to feel othered, what it means to feel like you're not really understanding what's going on here, and we spread this out into our deaf culture and actually had a Spanish sign language interpreter up here today interpreting the song. So even our deaf folks are probably trying to figure out, like, what is going on at church? All the same feelings, all the same expressions, because we are one family, and this idea of othering is really, really important for us to get our arms around if we want to be the church God has called us to be. If we really want to engage with melodias that are different than us, sometimes we have to engage with melodias that are so different from us that we don't even feel like we know where to begin. Let me give you a little bit of background on othering because it's not something I made up. Othering is, this is the best definition I found, any action by which an individual or group becomes mentally classified in somebody's mind as not one of us. So by me playing that song over a crowd like this, the story of the song is lost, much of the culture is lost, much of the beauty is lost. Doesn't mean you don't respect the song, doesn't mean you don't see the value, but it's other than you for the most part. And feeling othered makes us uncomfortable. From my perspective, as I look out into the crowd and watch every single, uh, you know, Melodia play opening, uh, I get to watch your faces as you're trying to connect with the song, as you're like, I think I know this song. Oh, I know this song. Oh, I know this song. This song was like this. I think I know this song. I don't, I don't know this. What's happening? And, and, and although you respect it, and although you're inclusive, you were, your face at the end was like, it was, and it's good, and I'm just stating it because it's important for the talk, and my plan worked. There are a number of psychological experiments done around people's desire to do anything to avoid being othered, anything at all. The most famous one probably is the Ash Conformity Experiment, which demonstrated to the extent to which we feel compelled to make sure we fit in as part of the tribe and we'll do almost anything to make sure that happens. This is the Ash Conformity Experiment. Dr. Ash took six volunteers, and he sat them in a room, and he showed them this graph. 
and he asks the question, which line is the same length as the line on the left? And then he started with a volunteer, let's say, to the left, and he began to move through the volunteers and hear their answers. Now, what the one of the people didn't know, the volunteer at the end on the right, was that five of the other volunteers were in on the experiment. He was or she was the only one being experimented on. And the other volunteers, one by one, would say that line A or line B or line C was the line that matched the line on the left. But what he did is he had everybody up until the last person give the wrong answer. And so every person would say, oh, definitely line B matches the one on the left. And the person at the end would be like, are you blind? And then the second person would go, yeah, same thing, of course, line B. Then the next person would go, uh, yeah, line B. When's this get hard? And the fourth person would be like, B. And the fifth person would be like, B. And then all of a sudden they would get to the one person who was like, uh, B? Because they were so worried about fitting in that they would give an honest, wrong answer much of the time in order to avoid being othered. Ash measured the number of times each participant conformed to the majority view. On average, about one-third, 32% of the participants who were placed in this situation went along and conformed with the clearly incorrect majority on the critical trials. Over the 12 critical trials, about 75% of participants conformed at least once and 25% of participants never conform. That's how badly people want to fit in and avoid being othered. In his conclusion, when they were interviewed after the experiment, most of the people who were not in on the full experiment said that they did not really believe their conforming answers, but had gone along with the group for fear of being ridiculed or thought peculiar. A few of them said they really did believe the group answers were more correct than their own. Apparently, this is what he ended up saying, people conform for two primary reasons or avoid being othered. One, because they want to fit in with the group, that is the normative influence, or two, because they believe the group is better informed than they are, that is the informational influence. So one, they just, they don't care about what's right or what's wrong, they just want to fit in with the group or they don't trust themselves enough and they look at the overall group and its majority movement as being more morally correct than whatever's going on inside their individual lives or hearts or worlds. And so they, to avoid being othered, to avoid feeling like they're not a part, they decide to choose a specific path based on the community they are in. Now, I say all this to set up a discussion that I want to have with you a discussion around a kind of difficult topic that Jesus teaches on quite a bit that is themed throughout the Bible. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus discusses the behavior of those who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. So he's talking about the way the kingdom of heaven is going to work. Now, if you have been in church at all, you understand that, that kingdom of heaven is not like, well, once we're in heaven. Kingdom of heaven is now. The church and the movement of Christian, Christians and the community of Christians is all supposed to be kingdom of heaven work. Jesus came to bring his kingdom. So this stuff applies to us right now. And he describes how the kingdom of heaven will work when he says this, Matthew 25, 34 through 36. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he describes the people who are coming into the kingdom of heaven. For I was hungry and you gave me food, 
I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Now, for us, we're like, those are such nice words. Like, I like to go help out, you know, and, and, and feed, you know, homeless people on Saturdays. Or I have those bags in my car. I like to help out at streetlights. Like, I get all that. I want to do that. That's not really what Jesus is talking about. Now, that stuff's important and valuable. But Jesus is talking about a whole other kind of thing because Jesus is talking about who gets invited in, who gets de-othered. And he describes all these people that don't fit. All these people, especially in this culture, if you are poor, if you are naked, if you are, if you are struggling, if you are weak, these are all sin issues. These are all spiritual issues. These are all people in the community who are DQ'd. And they're out. And they're out because that's just how it's been for generations after generations. As a matter of fact, up until Jesus, much of the Old Testament talked about how God will set apart his people. He'll put walls around his people. He'll protect his people. They were in and everybody else was out. And then Jesus comes along and he's like, yeah, that had a purpose for the time, but here's what I'm doing now. I'm going to tear down the walls and I'm going to flip the whole thing upside down and I'm going to invite everybody who's out in. There's nobody here mentioned in the kingdom of heaven, by the way, who would have fit inside a rabbinical way of thinking. Like there are no priests mentioned. There are no church leaders mentioned. There are no holy givers of money mentioned. Or, or There's none of the things that they valued being mentioned. And instead, he flips the entire thing upside down and he says the kingdom of heaven is going to be a place full of others, all feeling accepted and apart. This is all pointing to a very churchy, churchy word that I hope to take away from you and then brand back onto your heart with a different meaning, and that word is hospitality. Hospitality is this beautifully uh, counterculture, beautifully super risky, beautifully uh, kind of dangerous word that we have somehow tamed into inviting you to my house for a casserole on Sunday morning. And it's become about, as one man said in the back, I always read hospitality as, as a personality trait. Like, some people are hospitable, some people are not. So I always thought Jesus was saying, like, be hospitable, like, change your personality, be happier, be more inviting. And that is not at all what Jesus is saying. Hospitality is tied to this movement of taking people who are others and pulling them inside your community. As a matter of fact, the definition clearly is the quality or disposition of receiving and treating guests and strangers in a warm, friendly, generous way. Now, when you read it at first, you're like, yeah, I kind of understood that. Until you really hone in on the idea that it's really this connection of guests who are people you prefer to hang out with, guests, people you prefer to invest in, people who are going to get a good return for your investment. Like, I'm going to pour into that young man because one day he might, he might do something for the kingdom. So I'm going to pour into him. He's going to be a guest of my leadership, a guest of my friendship, a guest at my table. But then all of a sudden, there's this other word, strangers. What, what do you mean strangers? Hospitality is tied to strangers? Yes, actually, much, much more than you realize. In the New Testament, the Greek word for hospitality literally means love of strangers. So Jesus is calling us to connect with people that we don't know well and people that we don't really want to know well. I'm just saying it like it is. Like We're like, ugh. Like, I like helping them on a Saturday from 1 to 2, but like, like in my life kind of people? I like the guests. I like the people that, you know, we iron sharpens iron people. Beautiful sentiment. Wonderful. 
but has clearly to do with mentoring and leadership and a whole other thing than hospitality, which is the way that the kingdom of heaven operates. The kingdom of heaven operates based around this being hospitable idea, which has nothing to do with the in crowd being nicer to the in crowd. Like, we're really good at that at church. Like, we're so friendly, or we should be, right? Because this is our church. This is our community. But when you start bringing people in who are counterculture, you start bringing people in who think different than you and live different than you and believe different than you, it doesn't mean you suddenly drop your moral walls or you step off the foundation of Jesus. It just means you're willing to engage with them in an invitational way that makes them feel like a guest and doesn't instead badge them as a stranger. I, I think some of you in here, this is getting super close to home. Don't retreat. Don't run away. Stay frustrated. That's fine. This is a safe place. Okay, we're house of conversation. We're having a conversation. Primarily, I'm talking right now, but <laughs> but, but we can, this is, this is important because it's really between you and the Holy Spirit. If what we believe is true and if what God has called us to be is valuable, then we've got to stay in this and we've got to be able to wrestle it to the ground. One verse that I want to give you for you to wrestle with this week stands out to me as the most encompassing of all the hospitality verses, and it's also one of the shortest. It's our one another verse this week, 1 Peter 4.9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, this, this is where it gets offensive for some of you. Because if you're anything like me, in the way that I'm built, if you give me a discipline to do, I'll practice it. I hope I will overcome it, and then I will execute it, and then I will add it to the arsenal of my dannyness. Okay, it, generosity, I'm like, okay, this giving thing, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attack that. Oh, being more kind, I'm going to attack that. Oh, okay, uh, learning to teach, I'm going to attack that. But this hospitality piece seems to be something that, that you don't get to just add to the arsenal of your person. It actually has to become part of who you are because it says to show hospitality without grumbling, which means... There must be a group of people who are showing hospitality and then behind the scenes being like, well, that was exhausting. <laughs> well, that was tiring. I can't even believe I do this. I mean, I help these people, but why don't they help themselves? Ooh, I just quoted some of your, your internalness right now, didn't I? I know, I know, I get it. Showing hospitality without grumbling has everything to do with your spiritual posture. We say a lot around here that we want to have a spiritual posture that allows us to engage with things that are, that, are, that are maybe outside a normal Sunday experience or at least have been for a long time. We want to have a spiritual posture, for instance, of curiosity. Uh, we want people to re-engage with the Bible. A lot of people have set down the Bible because someone else told them how it worked. And then once you start really unpacking it as an adult, you're like, I don't, I don't know if this is how it works, but it's the Bible. And we did a series a while back called Untethered where we asked people to have a spiritual posture of curiosity and to be curious about maybe how they think the Bible works doesn't work. Therefore, maybe some things in the Bible you got wrong. Maybe you need to untether from it for a minute. Maybe you need to take a step back and have a spiritual posture of curiosity or a spiritual posture of, of willingness or openness or whatever it is. This particular idea, this without grumbling, showing hospitality, is a very open and beautiful spiritual posture, and it has everything to do with your attitude while you're being hospitable. The way the verse reads, it's quite clear that you and I have to face this either now or later if we want to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. 
and the baseline is that your attitude matters. Attitude, okay, just straight up uh, psychological attitude. Attitude is the psychological term for the bundle of beliefs and feelings you experience toward a person, topic, idea, etc., without having to consciously think about it. So it's not like you've well thought it out and you're like, okay, I'm going to see that. No, that's having a spiritual posture of learning or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to investigate that. No, that's having a spiritual posture of investigation. And it, it is healthy and it is good and it is right, but that's not your attitude. Your attitude is when something happens or you see something or someone and you immediately, based on all the data that you've built up throughout your life, based on your melodia, based on your understanding, it's what happened when the music played. You're like, I respect it, but I don't get it. Why is he playing this here in our white church? Right, that's your immediate, you don't want to say that. You don't want to say that, right? You're like, oh, uh. but that's the attitude we often have. Like this, this is another church. This is, what's going on? Like I thought we were doing music of our, of our people. And then all of a sudden, you start realizing, oh, wait, shoot, I, like, I've separated. I have this response. Let me show you how that works. I'll put up an image. I'll say a name. Just feel what you feel right when you see it. Justin Bieber. Oh, okay. A bunch of people went, Ugh. Some other people in the room, they're like, ooh, young Justin. <laughs> Either way, that's your attitude, right? You have a response to the person, to the thing, based on the data you have, based on the melodia you've experienced. Okay, I'll put up another one. Blueberry cheesecake. Okay. Kind of a weird one, right? Because cheesecake, yum. Blueberries, I love. Together, weird. But here's the thing. Maybe your grandma made blueberry cheesecake for you. So at the media that came out, you're like, I love blueberry cheesecake. It reminds me of warm hugs and, and love and those little gross butterscotch candies. And I love those too. I just love it. I just, I just want to crochet so bad right now. Like, you're just into it. You're just, you're so, you're so into it. And then another group's like, one time, Early in my marriage, my wife threw a blueberry cheesecake at me, and I've never eaten it since. <laughs> I hate blueberry cheesecake. And you have an attitude about it that has nothing to do with the blueberry cheesecake. Okay, here's another one. Uh, nuclear bomb. Yeah. You have a response, and it's built around the data and the experience you have. That's why the opening song was so important. Not to, not to degrade and not certainly to get political, just to recognize in your own space that you and I have these attitudes. And that is one thing that God is talking about when he asks basically recheck your attitudes when it comes to willingness to be hospitable, when it comes to inviting strangers into your life, people who are in need, people who are hurting, people who clearly could benefit from community with you that right now you've excluded and I've excluded as others. Now, I want to give you, uh, I want to unpack attitudes just for a second because I think this is really, really important. It's not fair for me to just tear apart where attitudes are, what attitudes are, and go, well, you all got them, we all got them. You know, go, go, go read a bio on Justin and hear how he suffered and love him and, you know, and go, go retweak Blueberry Cheesecake and pull it back in. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, though, is recognize how your attitudes formed, and it's fascinating when you really unpack it. Attitudes are formed like this. For many things, I'll put this on the screen, your attitudes came from actions which led to observations, which led to explanations, which led to beliefs. Now, if you were to sit with this and start to underline each of these steps, 
my guess is most everybody in this room would have thought it in reverse, that your attitudes actually came from beliefs that you really believed, that you could explain, that led to things you observed, that led to the way you behave. But that's actually not how attitudes are formed. The idea that attitudes are formed in the reverse way that most of us think they are is called the Benjamin Franklin theory. And it's a really interesting theory that I want to tell you about. First off, here's the common misconception, the one that most of us think. And this is what he said. The common misconception is that you do nice things for the people you like and bad things to the people you hate. So that you're like, I love you, so I'm going to help you, I'm going to serve you, I'm going to protect you. I don't care for you, okay? And, and therefore, I'm not going to engage in those things. And that's actually a misconception. The complex truth is you grow to like the people for whom you do nice things, and you hate the people you harm. That it actually starts with your behavior, and that your behavior in reverse then begins to fill your mind and so form an attitude. If you wanted to really unpack this, you can spend time on it. It's the theory of cognitive dissonance, the idea that, that I'm wrestling with my behavior, so I'm going to change who I think I am to match the behavior that I have. Now, it's called the Benjamin Franklin theory because of a famous sort of lifelong experiment that he did that is well documented uh, in his autobiography. He says that when he was running for office as a young man, he was running against another man in his town who was very influential and very, very politically uh, connected. And Benjamin Franklin defeated him, which made this man a lifelong enemy of Benjamin Franklin. And he knew that in the future it would be a problem for him politically because the man was just too connected. He was going to rise in power. And so he wanted to figure out, how do I get this man not to hate me so much and not change my willingness to defeat him in different races as we go? So he looked at the first thing people knew about Benjamin Franklin, about his own life. And he knew that people had a deep respect for his library. And at the time, this was immense and beautiful and, and wonderful, and he was super well-known for it. And he also knew this other man had a much smaller but also respected library. So Benjamin Franklin put a plan into place. He wrote a letter to his enemy that hated him, and he said, do you happen to have this incredibly rare book? Now, the man, he already knew had the book, and by the way, Benjamin Franklin also already had the book. But he wanted the man to be willing to loan him this rare book. And so the man got the letter, and he was honored. Because if Benjamin Franklin's incredible library doesn't have this book, then that must mean I have an incredible library as well. And so he grew in stature because Benjamin Franklin needs me. So he lent him the book. Benjamin Franklin sat the book on the shelf, acted like he read it for a few weeks, and then returned the book. Thank you so much. I couldn't have found it anywhere else. Do you happen to have this other book? The man was like, you've got to be kidding me. Benjamin Franklin doesn't have, <laughs> maybe his library is not as good as I thought it was. And so they, over the years, this man starts lending Benjamin Franklin books. And here's what happens. Here's what happens when our attitudes and how our attitudes are formed. The action of the man lending Benjamin Franklin a book made his library better, made him feel good about Benjamin Franklin, and then made him somewhere along the way say, if I'm loaning Benjamin Franklin books, I'm an amazing person, and I would never loan books to, to people who I hate and people who are criminals and people who are all these things the man had told everybody he was. So he just changed his opinion of Benjamin Franklin and began to tell people how wonderful he was and how he had an okay library and how he was a good man. And he, for years this went on, for years, until the man became one of his biggest allies. Our attitudes come first from how we treat people, not just 
what somebody tells us to believe, but how we have actually walked out those beliefs in our lives. This is the idea that the things you do often create the things you believe. That's the core essence of the theory. The things you do often create the things you believe. Now apply everything you learned about Jesus' desire to have a kingdom full of others, okay? Apply everything you learned about how attitudes are formed, that they're formed by the things you do. So if you, if you want to love somebody, you go do something loving for them. You don't just have love for people that you do nice things for. It's in reverse. And then listen to this little simple verse that has been expounded on many, many times when Jesus said in Luke 14, 13, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Now this is a feast. This is Christmas. This is like sacred time. This is like when you hang out with people that you honor. Like these are hand-picked people that are chosen to, to represent your love and your prestige and, and who you are in the kingdom, in the world. And Jesus says when you have a feast, you invite people who are the others, the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Now, why is he doing that? Now, I have heard this sermon, and this is when my opinion, when it's given, a majority of the time, this is when it goes completely sideways. And so, and I, by the way, feel free to challenge all this. Feel free to unpack it in your own mind and go repreach it yourself. But this is, this is what I really believe in my heart is the core essence of what othering and in bringing people in through attitude and loving people in the kingdom and becoming a church that is multi- cultural, multi-diverse, all these beautiful things that we're supposed to be in the kingdom is about. It's about this idea right here that when we do this, this is where sermons go blind, we always tell people, if you'll help somebody else, you'll be blessed. So to be crass about it, when you help poor people, you get a poor person prize, right? When you help homeless people, you get a homeless, oh, you don't, have your, you don't have your homeless badge yet. Have you not helped anybody yet? Man, you got to get down there and hand out some sandwiches and socks. You get a homeless badge, you'll get a poor person badge, you'll get, right, you'll get, a, you'll get an open house ministries badge. Like when you do stuff, that, and you usually need to Facebook it, let people know, and then be like, really like, what, you saw that? That's crazy. <laughs> Reminds me of a, of a, a church that I visited one time, and I walked in, and there were all these people wearing these different colored little uh, pieces of metal, like. You know, they were like chrome, and they were like brass, and they were gold. And I was like, hey, what are, like, a lot of people are wearing those. I'm like, oh, those are our generosity badges. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? And they were like, yeah, we, we get to wear those based, uh, every month based on what we gave that month. And, you know, there's even a few platinum givers here today, I think, for sure. Yes, that's not how the kingdom of heaven works. Okay, that is not how it works. Jesus is inviting people into this place because when you... Okay, it's 11 o'clock. I'm getting frustrated now. <laughs> Jesus is directly addressing the universal truth that all humans at some level have an undeniable inclination to engage in othering thought patterns. So if you're listening to this message and you're like, this isn't me, you're wrong. You're just wrong. And all you've done is never sat in a space where you actually have to ask, does everybody in my life believe like me, think like me, look like me, walk like me, about make as much money as me? Or, or do you have a diverse, you know one of the most profound things about Kessa that people say is that we stole all the grandparents in town. We stole all the grandparents. They're like, you guys aren't the hippest church in town. Like, you know, you could wear skinnier skinny jeans, Danny, and maybe a longer shirt. But you stole all the grandparents, so I don't know what's going on. And I'm like, that's right, I'm not giving them back. 
That's right, because we want to be multi-generational. We want our kids to be able to come with their parents, with their grandparents. And the whole point of this whole movement is to give the whole thing away because that's what the kingdom's about. It doesn't belong to me or you. But that means sometimes the music's too loud for some. Sometimes the music's too quiet for others. Sometimes the, the, the message are like, eh, it didn't really hit me, but it hit somebody else. And in a community like this, when we have this, this hospitality mindset, people go, and I'm okay with that. Because I'm here with my whole family. I'm here with everybody that I love. And I'm part of a community that values me and doesn't build a church around me. Instead builds a church around the kingdom and around the Holy Spirit. But what Jesus is doing, he's teaching this. That actively learning to call out these kind of behaviors is to avoid and counteract the thought patterns that we need to in order to become hospitable. Therefore, this becomes integral to greatly reducing the world's hatred and suffering as well as for our own heart's reconstruction. Jesus is saying this, invite others even when you don't want to into your life because yes, it's helpful to them, but because it's transformative for you. Because when you invite people in, your mind says, these people at this table are sitting at my valuable table in my valuable home using my valuable time. They must be valuable. Because your mind can't do it any other way. It's how God has built us. These people are receiving my love and they're smiling and I can see like, like, like they're thirsty for community. They must be loving. They must want to be in my community. But it starts off with doing the thing you don't want to do. Jesus is saying, be like me and do what I do. Start there. Follow me, Jesus says. Follow me. Walk like me, talk like me, act like me, be like me, and do what I do. Because once you do what I do, action, you will love like I love attitude. Too many of us in this room right now, you have no action because you're still waiting to get your attitude and love right. And you're like, I just don't have a heart for it. It'd be disingenuous for me to go do that. And Jesus is like, hello. Just get out there and do it. Yeah, but if I get out there and do it, what'll happen? Suddenly you'll be like, I think I might have a heart for this. I think I might have an attitude for this. I think this might actually be something I'm called to do. I said earlier we want to be a house of conversation. Another word for that is a community of difference. That's who we're supposed to be. Frankly, and I mean this as theologically sound as possible, but the sloppier the better. The less you think I know what I'm doing and the more you realize I'm on my knees asking God, I'm listening to people, I'm trying to figure it out, the less you buy into the brand of Danny or the brand of Kesson or the brand of the Northwest or the brand of whatever you're trying to put your security in and the more you realize, man, we're in this community thing. It's like a big giant experiment called Kingdom of God and all these people are loving each other and we've got some leaders and we've got deep responsibility but like I'm supposed to play a part, not just show up and listen. I'm supposed to support with prayer, support with serving, support with finances. Like, I'm supposed to be part of this. And guess what? A few of those, those aren't going to feel good when you start. And they're not supposed to because it's sacrificial love. I'm guessing three quarters of the time Jesus loved people like he did, it didn't feel good to him. Why is it supposed to feel good to you? Why is that the goal? Like, well, I'm just not comfortable getting out there and doing stuff. Can you imagine if Jesus got up and looked in the mirror every day and he's like, you know, this thing's getting kind of messy. This is who we're called to be. And the reason the church is so powerful is because nobody really has 
the metrics. Nobody has a system. Nobody has the cornerstone to do it well. And yet we were given scripture and spirit and a calling to make it happen and to see it out. So this is your church. Show up and pretend like it. And I mean those words carefully. Show up and pretend like it. And it may just end up becoming your church. Love unlovable people and you may end up loving them. Cherish people that are difficult in your life and you may end up cherishing difficult people. Serve, give, help, and you may end up not holding so tight to your time and your treasure and whatever you think you're about because it's all getting faded. It's all going away anyways. What if you were the generation first ever in your family where you broke that trend and it became about something other than you, than me? Now, I say all that because it does lead us into an interesting house of conversation conversation. So, over the past year, did you know that this year, one year ago today is when we shut Kessa down and went strictly online? One year ago this weekend is when, yeah, due to the pandemic, we did all that. Throughout the entire pandemic, uh, we have tried to sit in this space that included people from different perspectives. We called it a gray space. And it frustrated everyone because nobody won. And then we had seasons where we were like, hey, we're going to lean more towards this. We're going to lean more towards that. We're going to put up signs in the lobby. We're going to ask people to wear masks. We're, we're going to do all these different things. And every single time I would get emails from both sides saying it's not enough or it's too much or sit down or stand up or be quiet or talk louder. It didn't matter. It was just, it was just frustrated, angsty emails. And yet, throughout, I don't think I received a single email from someone who said I'm leaving. Not one. Instead, they said, I'm staying, but I'm mad. And I was like, legit, welcome to the kingdom, right? I mean, right, that's half the time I'm preaching. Like, I'm just like, I'm frustrated to be here. Let's talk about Jesus. Like, it's just, it, it's kind of just life, right? So let me talk about the next shift. As our county gets ready to open to stage three here in a few weeks, uh, we, you may have noticed, are slowly opening more and more and more of our church. And in anticipation of Palm Sunday coming up and Easter and so forth, we are going to leave all the signs up that you see for masks. We're still going to encourage people and recommend you wear masks, but we are not going to police them. We are not going to stop at the door or poke you on the shoulder or say, hey, here's the deal. I see like 12 people taking their masks off right now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the Holy Spirit's here in the church. It's amazing. Now here's, <laughs> now here's what's profound about what just happened. One group felt a little bit more like they got what they want, and another group felt a little bit othered. And that's how it works back and forth, back and forth. My hope is that you see and hear my heart and the elder's heart. We're still going to have all of our staff wearing masks. All our key volunteers are going to be asked to wear masks. But my hope is that you see there is a community of people who see things differently and are both ex uh, accepted and loved and cherished and honored, and yet they don't have to set down their beliefs. My hope is that we can respect somebody else. If you see somebody with a mask on, don't run up and hug them and say, isn't this great? Hold her mask down and say, I can see you now, breathing in your face. Right? That's not what, don't just sit next to somebody, you know, in a mask. Like, be respectful. Let's try to actually, like, live this community out. And let's also recognize that there's some people who today are grieving because they're probably not going to attend in person anymore. They're going to have to shift back to online, and that's a hard and sad thing. But in a community, we can navigate all of this together if we're willing to be hospitable, if we're willing to live out our actions and invite the others, if we are willing above all else to go after people who are outside and bring them in, and if we're willing to be the hands and feet of Jesus.
Amen? Amen. I want to close by telling you the words of the song that I played at the beginning. Uh, there, it's, it's a longer song and has lots and lots of passages and verses, but uh, these are the three that, I, that stood out to me the most. This is what it says. The shepherd goes with his flock at the break of dawn, going down through the path from the mountains to the meadows. The shepherd is going back since the sun is hiding. He is going up through the slope to keep watch over his flock. With his flute, he goes calling one by one his sheep, and he is communicating to them his joys and his sorrows. The song is about a shepherd who's playing his melodia while all the sheep are following. Everyone's invited and included to be a part. We get to live this out. We get to show the generation after us that is watching us set down the, our need, our desires, and maybe even some of our, our immediate needs and in exchange for something more in the kingdom that includes everybody who wants to be a part of listening to the melodia of the shepherd. And it's beautiful, and it's difficult, and it's sloppy, and it's sad, and it's exciting. And it's family, and it's kingdom, and you're all invited to be a part. We stand for me. We're going to close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I want to thank you for the way you move, for the way you dance among us. I want to thank you for awakening people to maybe something more for them to be curious about. If there is feelings of discomfort in the room or, or angst, I pray, God, you would use that. If you, would, you, would, you would lean into that. If there's feelings of joy and, and happiness, I pray, God, you would use that and lean into that. And all the feelings in between, Lord, would you please use along with our hands and our prayers and our voices, with our giving, with our generosity, with our serving, may you build the kingdom you want to build. We thank you, Lord, for including us, for calling us, for leading us with your melodia of love. We lift this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Before I dismiss you, I want to remind you guys, next week is the close of our melodia series. It's going to be the finale, so I hope you come back. And um, also, we'll be announcing all of our Good Friday, Palm Sunday, and Easter updates, and then a brand new series. So lots happening. God bless. Have a great week. See you next Sunday. <laughs>